Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 65 of an Inside View podcast. We're on the ball, team building. This is our last episode of the podcast. So we'd like to take this opportunity to thank each and every one of you for tuning in over the last couple of months uh, for the continued support you showed. And um, we hope to be back in a couple of weeks' time. But be sure to keep an eye on our social media pages to, to see how... And when we will be back. Big shout out to GRG Sports and Vintry Harbour Asset Management for the continued support. We really appreciate it guys. This week and our last guest of the podcast is ultra endurance athlete and business owner Shane Finn. He ran his first marathon in 2010 as an 18 year old and since then he's ran over 100 marathons, ultra marathons Ironman, triathlons all over the world. Shane's cousin Mary, who lives at Spine and Bifida, was the reason Shane transitioned into a life of endurance sports. Shane and his team has raised over 300 grand for Spine and Bifida and Hydrocephalus Ireland since doing his first marathon in 2010. There is no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi Shane, firstly, thanks for taking time out because I know you've a lot, lot on at the moment to come on inside your podcast. How are you keeping? All good, Jamie. All good. All good in the hood. Yeah. Uh, keeping busy, always doing something and uh, looking forward to the chat. Good. Good. We're trying to get this over the line last couple of months and uh, we decided with uh, this is going to be episode 65, the last episode of the of the series. I won't be doing the series of 65 episodes going forward, but um, I suppose just leave the best to last is, is something I may, may as well go with. That's it. That's it. Or leave the worst until the last because it can't get any much worse <laughs> after that. So one or the other. True, yeah, true, true. Look, bring us through the COVID pandemic, just a brief insight. How do you deal with it from, you know, you're a very positive person, but how do you deal with it? Do you find it difficult? Um, I think, well, you know, I suppose here in Ireland, we had three quote-unquote lockdowns. I think the third was the hardest one for me because it went through the winter. Do you know what I mean? I think the first one was almost like a novelty. Um, it was great. I was working every day, training every day. I was like, this is brilliant, you know. Um, I'd love this. I, I suppose when I, in, in hindsight as well, like my life didn't actually change massively in the first. And I don't want to feel bad saying that because I know some people's lives are completely turned upside down. Um, you know, I just kind of worked and trained and, and that was it. That was my life, you know, and I kind of just kept doing that. Um, then the third lockdown, all right, over the winter was 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 particularly difficult, just you know, dark, it's dark until nearly 10 o'clock in the morning. It's dark again at half four. You know, I, I wasn't out as much and, you know, I love getting up early and I love training and I love climbing and running and stuff like that. And just, it's harder in the winter. I still do it obviously, but I definitely felt a bit more like kind of stuck in the mud, I guess, in the last, the last one. But um, no, look, overall, I think the last year and a half for me personally has been, been positive from a business perspective. It's been positive and, yeah, look, obviously everybody thinks of it in a bit of a different way now. I think a lot more people are into their health and their fitness and their wellness and looking after themselves after the last year and a half. And um, yeah, I take that as a massive positive. I know people have, have lost a lot, but, um, you know, there's always something you can you can learn and something you can take away from everything. Is there a clothing line in the pipeline? Um, no, there is no clothing line in the pipeline for me anyway. Maybe somebody very close to me. Um, so I'm saying I'm helping helping my girlfriend set up her uh, her clothing company at the moment. Um, funny story how it started actually <laughs> a good while ago now when I when I brought her on our, our first date, she no jacket, and um, she had no proper jacket anyways. She had no jacket, but I don't know it wouldn't have helped much um, climbing up the side of a mountain here in West Kerry, but. Uh, yeah, so she started an, an outdoor clothing company, um, so based on the Irish outdoors, so kind of themed with Irish colours, kind of darker greens, um, navies, kind of greys, things like that. Um, so kind of higher end stuff, jackets, good fleeces and stuff like that. So um, yeah, obviously I'm, I'm going to be helping her out as much as I can and I'm excited. 
to uh, to see it develop for her. I remember when she uh, first came up with the idea, and now literally she has her second sample. I'm looking at it across the room here in uh, in my apartment in Dingle. The second sample of a jacket that we were waterproof testing the last day up at a Connor Pass, and it, it passed the test. So, uh, so yeah, it's all good. If it passed the test up there, you should be safe enough. And absolutely. Um, you, what, 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 what are you at at the moment, Ocean? I know you're training and you're doing the groups and all that, but you've a couple of online, um, we say gigs with Clan Health and and things like that. Yeah, so I suppose I was just assisting Clan Health in getting up off the ground over in the US. And um, basically, I suppose with the pandemic, you know, I was actually working online since 2017, and um, so I had a lot of, we'll say, the, the systems and the back end stuff and the automations already all set up. And uh, my friend Seamus Keane set up Clan Health back in 2019. Actually, I met him when I was getting ready to cross America. And uh, he'd set up a kind of a fitness business in New York for the Irish community. So it was a very much so revolved around Irishness, keeping people together, bringing people together, et cetera, et cetera. Because a lot of, uh, you know, abroad, a lot of Irish communities are either connected in one or two ways. And the one way is Gaelic football and the second way is alcohol. So like he wanted to set up a third one that, you know, true fitness and things like that, that people could come together. So obviously with the pandemic, everything shut and click, flick a switch. He lost his whole business, like literally instantaneously. And he had to move online very quickly. So um, I agreed to go in and help him for like nine to 12 months. And that was, that was a lot of, a lot of fun. And um, I had to kind of jump out a little bit earlier than I, I had hoped to, because uh, my own stuff started to really kind of take off as well. Just, you know, in the, with the, the last year and a half everybody's pivoted and moved online uh, and i mean everybody like uh, you know even my you know my parents were doing pilates classes on zoom and you know so like everybody had everybody knew how to do fitness online now and you know things things started getting quite quite busy for me so i had to focus on that i do a lot of online coaching one-to-one group coaching and then i do some kind of consulting then as well for brands um, but mainly coaching at the moment, which I'm, which I'm enjoying. And then as well, as you know, very well, um, we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I do a lot of kind of running focus weekends for people. Um, so if one actually starting today as well or this evening, um, so I'm hoping that the rain stays away for the weekend or for some, some part of the weekend anyway. Um, so yeah, lots of different things going on. And I just love, I love being busy. I love having my hands in things and I, I'm never, I'm never bored anyway. So that's, that's a, that's a good thing. Definitely, you're the geez, you're definitely never bored, aren't I? Because um, you know, I, I turned on the radio yesterday and I said I recognise that voice, and you were on with you know with, on, on um on Kerry Radio doing an interview, and do I just give a bit of an insight? I suppose by the time this goes out, um, possibly you'd be maybe a week or two out from the event, but the crossing from Divra to the Dinga Peninsula. Yeah, so I'm getting ready to swim from South Kerry to West Kerry, basically. Um, I up the idea actually about two and a half three years ago one morning in the winter running up Mount Brandon and it was uh, I remember there was snow at the top of Brandon and the only other place there was snow was a cross and crown tool and uh, it was just really cool and as has happened hundreds of times I was the only person up on Mount Brandon for the sunrise and uh, I just sat there looking across at the Evera Peninsula and I was like she's going to be mad to swim like from from Carsevine to Dingle like that would be mad Do you know I know people who go over and back on boats couple of friends of mine and stuff that I was in school with here in Dingle growing up would have little boats and they'd go on their boat out to the Skellig Michael or out to Carsevine and then turn around and come back and I was just like geez just swim home like you know but I you know obviously I was training to cross America and, and whatnot so it kind of was always in the back of my mind and I think over COVID you know obviously um you know I would just put my hands up and say I I, I would have escaped the old 5k the odd time to run on the mountains you know and like I remember actually one day passing a, a checkpoint and the, uh, you know, <laughs> they asked me where I was going and I was head to toe in running gear and I wasn't going to the shop anyways, but uh, they said, look, where, where you're going, you won't see anybody. And I, I was heading up Mount Brandon and I think I was gone for like seven or eight hours or something. And I looked across uh, and I said, do you know what? I'm going to give that a go. Um, so I asked Jimmy Flannery here in Dingle, who, who I know quite well, um, you know, and he, they're actually going to do the support boat for me as well on the day. He's like, is this, is this possible? Like, can you, can you do this? And is it safe? Um, and he said, safe, I'm not sure, possible, maybe. Uh, and that was enough, really, you know. So I had a couple of conversations with Jimmy and I uh, went down to his house to meet him and stuff like that. And he was like, you know, if you get the tides right, you can do it and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there's not many people in, in, in Dingletown anyway that don't know the water out there as good as he does. So 
I'll be putting a lot of trust in him to uh, to give that a shot. So depending on the tides, um, even after the weekend here now, we, we, we'll, we'll probably have to move the finish point. But um, yeah, it'll be probably close to six hours of swimming straight across. Um, so I'll be swimming north to anybody who's trying to picture it from the map of Ireland, north from South Kerry to, to West Kerry. So I'll be hoping for a nice light southerly breeze that day. Fingers crossed anyway. And like what what things like so the one of the main factors would obviously be weather and uh, the sea is it? Yeah, weather condition like we can't pick a date because we need to work off the weather. Do you know? Mm. So literally, there'll be a period and Jimmy will say go, and I'll have to just start and hopefully that we get the weather right. You know, there, there's a massive. There's probably a sixty to seventy percent chance here that I start this and we'll have to stop because we got the weather wrong. Um, and just go back and wait till the next day or something like that. So currents are a huge thing. Obviously, you know, the current tide changes every six hours um, as, as, you know, as normal everywhere in the world. So like you want to make sure that, you know, for the first 30 minutes or so, I'll probably be swimming into the current and into the tide. Um, and then the plan is to to settle into it and the current, the tide should change and kind of bring me up towards Dingle. That's the plan. Um, so I, if, again, anybody who's familiar with, with Kerry and the geography of Kerry, I'll almost kind of be swimming, not towards Menard, but almost towards Kinnard at the start. And then the current will kind of bring me that way towards Dingle. Uh, that's the plan anyway. I could end up out in the blaskets or something if it goes wrong, but hopefully uh, hopefully it doesn't. Like what... what um... How are you kind of replicating the potential environment now at the moment? Mm. So I'm swimming about three or four days a week, um, and that's about as much as my shoulders can take at the moment. Um, one long swim, so a long swim could be anywhere from two to three and a half hours in the water swimming. Um, so I'm doing that in, I just swim a lot in Smurwick Harbour. So Bally David, a lot of people will know of Bally David. Um, so I swim there a lot because it's actually very, there's very, very strong tidal currents in the, in the harbour, but it's also very safe. Um, or as I swim in Ventry, Ventry Harbour as well. Ventry Harbour is, is a bit exposed to the wind, but uh, I find Smurwick Harbour, if the, I just check the wind. If the wind is from the south, I swim in Smurwick. If the wind is from the north, I swim in Ventry. So I kind of just gauge it off that. So yeah, just getting used to the currents, just getting used to the wind. Um, you know, I breathe to my right. So obviously if the wind is from the north and I breathe to my right, I'm getting waves in my face. And so you just all those kind of factors are, are, are in play. And look, I, I put my hand up. I'm learning a lot. You know, I'm kind of almost like a beginner again at it, you know, because like running and cycling and whatnot and climbing, I can I can literally do it all day with my eyes closed. But swimming is, you know, it's it's not new to me. Like if a few Ironman triathlons done, but like this distance of swimming and like this 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 level of it, it's very new to me. And it's kind of it's fun. It's different. And you're you're going to do um, um, mountain mountaineer mountain climbing. I probably have the terminology wrong. Yeah, there, yeah. No, but no, how did that come about? Yeah, random enough. Um, I, I suppose I, I, uh, look, I love, I love climbing. I love exploring, love running, running up and hiking up and down mountains, and not even like big mountains, even just mountains here around home. I would have gotten to know a guy called James Amanis over the last number of years. He owns a, a hugely successful company called Earth's Edge. Um, they're one of the most successful travel companies, uh, adventure travel companies, probably in Europe. Um, if not the world, I'd say they they do um they do some really really cool stuff. And um, James just reached out to me and he was like, "Would you be up to like coming on a coming up a mountain with us?" You know, and I just thought that I'd go with them for the crack, you know. And I didn't really know kind of like what he was kind of getting at, you know. So, anyways, I went to Dublin to meet him, and he you know proposed that I would do like an expedition and bring people with me and stuff like that to this mountain called Kangyatse. So it's spelled K A N G, and then a separate word Y A T S E. So Kangyatse out in India. Now, Kenyatse is the highest, so the, the Himalayan mountain range like spans like a, a very, very large portion of the world. Um, and it you know, the Indian part of it, Kenyatse is the highest peak in the Indian Himalayas. And it had never been summited by an Irish group before. It had been summited by an Irish people like on their own and different trips, but as a group, it had never been done. So he pitched the idea to me and literally, I think within probably less than three minutes, I was like, I'm in, like, we're like, what do I do? So uh, we put it out there. We've got it. We sold it out literally within a couple of days. And obviously we had to postpone it because of COVID. So that's actually ha happening next September. But before that, then we're going to Kilimanjaro as well, which is going to be another big, a big expedition. It's um, about 19,000 feet. Kangyatse is about 20, just over 20,000 feet. 
and for scale like Everest to be 28,000. Um, so they're big mountains. Kilimanjaro is the uh, is the highest freestanding mountain in the world. So it's like it's standing on its own. It's on a range. Mm-hmm. So you know the Himalayas goes on for there's all these peaks everywhere. And but this is just one mountain standing on its own out in Tanzania. And I'm just well, I'm excited just to share it with people because a lot of the stuff I've done over the last number of years, it's just been me and there's been nobody else. Like you know, I haven't been with anybody doing the whole thing all the time. So I think the team aspect of this is going to be um, good fun. And I'm excited. I'm excited for that. I'm excited to help people like do these things and realize that they can do, you know, cool challenges and stuff as well. So, so yeah, we're heading to Kilimanjaro out to Africa in January, and then we're going to out to the Indian Himalayas in uh, September. And then I might be heading out to the, all the way down to Argentina in, in December, if, if that goes ahead. So that's not confirmed yet, but that's next December, obviously. So, so yeah, it's all, it's all go. Sure. Why, why would you not? True. Yeah. Especially look, we, we mean worse situations, but how, like how, how has training, how is training different um, for those events compared to ones you've done previously? Yeah. I mean, the mountains really are just about strength um, and practice and like practicing walking up mountains. Like I've done Mount Brandon and Crown too with guys who are quote unquote very fit um, and they're, they're, they're needing breaks by the second cross because, you know, they think they're very fit and they can move weights in the gym, but fitness is not one particular thing. Fitness for me is, is many different things. Like, and I want to be able to climb with the climbers, cycle with the cyclists, run with the runners and swim with the swimmers. Like that's what I want to be able to do. And yeah, that's what I enjoy. I love testing things out. And I realize that, for climbing you have to be very very aerobically fit you have to be very very strong and you have to be structurally sound so if you've got like a bad back or a bad knee or something like that the mountain will pick it out a lot faster than anything else will you know so a lot of strength work a lot of hiking a lot of walk even if i'm going on short hikes or anything like that i always bring my backpack and i fill about four two liter bottles of water into it not that i need the water but it's just to weigh up my backpack a little bit um, and just get practice just hauling a bag up a mountain you know um so little things like that uh, i find really good obviously practicing things like navigation skills and you know getting used to like using like a tiny little compass and all these kind of little things they're very very small but things we probably should be taught as kids growing up and how to use them but yeah it's obviously very different the road running and obviously cycling and stuff like that is very like you know it's structured it's this it's that but the mountains is just more kind of going to head out for four to five hours and, and go this way or that way and find different routes. And, you know, Mark, like we went on a, a long one last week, last, uh, I don't remember what day, last Sunday, I think, you know, we way off the beaten track down on this cliff off, off Mount Brandon. And we said, we'd go down one way and find a different way up and just things like that. You know, I find that, find that really fun. I find it very exciting. Other people, that's the worst thing in the world I could ever think of, but yeah, I love it. I think it's great. Have you experienced any falls or anything like that or, or serious falls? Just, uh, slipping? Not yet. No, I haven't had any serious falls yet. Thank God. Um, nothing, nothing yet, hopefully, and nothing for a long time. <laughs> Fingers crossed anyways. Look, we all, I, I like to go back to, you know, early childhood and kind of how we shape the person who we have today in front of us. Um, and uh, there's one slight moment that stands out for me anyway, because obviously we, we grew up next door to each other Um what moment in your life do you think really built in that resilience and showed your resilience uh, in your youth? Farming was definitely a big, big aspect on that. Oh, farming, yeah, farming. Uh, I remember when the, the cattle truck fell off the back of the tractor. Yeah. It's probably the moment you were talking about. Um, I don't know why you sent me out to take it off, but I went out to take it out and it fell on my foot. The first thing I did was run up, like literally ran to the other side of the field. Um, I don't know why, but that's my it was my reaction. Um, I think to be honest, for me, sport sport was massive growing up. I I loved sport. I loved competition. I loved like you know I loved competing. That was a big big thing. Um, and I suppose if there was one particular moment, I was still technically not an adult when I did it. But my first marathon was probably the the, the massive thing in my life that really taught me what resilience was and actually showed me how little resilience I had um, really that first marathon. So if there was a pick one moment in time, it'd probably be, it'd probably be that. Why did you sign up for your first marathon? Like was it just because it's local? Uh, no, I remember at the time um, that particular summer, my cousin Mary was having quite a lot of uh challenges and difficult she'd be in and out of hospital a lot and i you know i just you, you hear from you know parents that oh, mary's in for this surgery that surgery da, da, da. you know and i would obviously you know i'm i'm, I'm healthy i'm fit like i i'm i'm i have i'm a lucky guy that i can put my two feet in the floor in the morning and go about my day 
Um, and it just, I don't know. I, I remember it wasn't the first year of the Dingle Marathon. I remember seeing, seeing it in the newspaper and I was just like, that's really stupid. Like, why would you do that? Do you know? And actually, I remember working on the day the year before um, in Super Valley in the fruit and veg and seeing people coming in that morning and they were like, they look, they all look really fit, you know? And I was, I was just, you know, working away and I was just like, what are, what are all these people doing, you know? And then that next year I saw it and it was around the May, I think, I said to my mom, I was like, I'm going to run the Dinga Marathon and raise money for Mary's charity, you know? Um, I think I ran Inch Beach twice and that was it before my first marathon. And to say it was a baptism of fire would be an understatement. It's still to this day, the hardest thing I've ever done is my first marathon without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, I was so underprepared. I was so unfit. I was so unconditioned. Um, I had so little resilience. You know, I was, my pain tolerance was so low. Um, I would glad I would always say that the hardest thing I've ever done is my first marathon. When you you know when you're, because I obviously saw the twenty four marathons. When you're in these situations that you know your body is starting to shut down, what's it like inside in your head, the inner turmoil and resilience? Yeah, um, I've never been at that point actually. I remember the only time I've been at that point was actually over after an Ironman out in America actually and I remember getting back from the race and like I had rented a car and rented an Airbnb I was, I was up there on my own up in the mountains in New York and I remember after the race going around to get my bike and put my bike into the car um, and like my legs were so goosed like I was destroyed like I did a really good race but I was like I was in a bad way after um, and I remember it's an automatic car and I remember trying to lift my leg across to press the brake my quad would just start cramping. So I couldn't drive. So I had to sit there for like an hour and um, basically just drinking water and trying to maneuver myself to drive. And when I did manage to drive back to my Airbnb, um, I just got out of the car and I just laid on the grass, like in the child's pose for like 20 minutes on my own, like at seven o'clock at night in the dark. I was just like, Jesus Christ, if anybody saw me, like, you know, um, but I think at that moment in time, I always know, I've always told myself that the pain will pass. The pain will pass. Do you know what I mean? That's that's the good thing about it as well. And like no matter what I'm doing, whether it's a one a, like a one-off event or a multi-day event or whatever it is, I know that when it's finished, like my life, my life goes back to normal. Whereas somebody like my cousin Mary or or somebody else in a situation similar, like their life, their life doesn't go back to normal the next day or when it's over, they have to get up again and, and go through the same thing again. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, for me, I suppose knowing that no matter what you're going through now, it's the same. It's a nice metaphor for life as well. Like it will pass, but you know, you will get through it. It might feel really shit now and you might feel like, you know, it's not worth pushing through, but it, it always is. It always is worth pushing through. And some days are harder than others. And, and, and when you do get there, when you do get it done, um, it feels pretty damn good. When that period, when, when college didn't work out, you dropped out. Um, did you feel like, what, what were the feelings around it? Did you feel like a failure or upset? Because I think it's important because, you know, look, things aren't for everyone. Do you know what I mean? And, mm. and it's important for people to hear that as well. Yeah, I, I think like I have a very, very firm stance on college now that I've experienced it. And I, and now I am, you know, that was 11 years ago. Um, I, I, I don't think, and this is a pretty controversial statement, I don't think college is as important as people make it out to be. Um, I think people use it as, look, I know people that have, you know, done three college degrees and still don't have a job. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I'm just like, why, what's like, I don't, I don't see the point. And obviously if you're going to become a doctor or an architect or you want to get into financial services or whatever it is, you have to go to college and that's, that's just the way that's your path. Okay. But I'm self-employed since I'm 19 years old, you know? So like, I don't, you know, I didn't need to do what I was doing. So yeah, look, initially there was a, there was a fear. I was just like, oh, I'm making the right decision here. Do you know what I mean? And I remember, you know, coming home that day and like not telling my parents that I dropped out of college because I was fucking shit in a break basically. Do you know what I mean? And then I told them the next day, um, you know, and they were very supportive. They were just like, look, fair play. Well done. Like if you weren't happy, well done on making that call and you know, you, you, you're on your own now, basically, and figure it out, you know. So I think that was a good that was a good answer to give me because I was like, geez, yeah, I'm on my own now to figure this out, you know. So I spent the next six months um literally working every hour I could get. I remember working in Super Value and asking them for more hours, but because of you know, whatever, you know, you can't work over a certain amount of hours. So I worked some days on the QT and stuff like that. I just worked as much as I could, and I was just like, I'll figure things out. And literally, I think about seven months after that. 
uh, I left that and set up my my first business with with Mark and um, yeah, still still going anyways. So uh, yeah, look, I think if I had stayed in college, you know, I often think about this. If I had stayed in college and just done something that, you know, people say, oh, you should do this in college or you should do that in college, I wouldn't have run the twelve marathons. I wouldn't have run the twenty four. I wouldn't have crossed America. I wouldn't be where I am now. I wouldn't know a lot of the people. A lot of people are in my life now. It wouldn't be in my life because I wouldn't have done what I did, you know. So yeah, I think everything's you know meant to be for a reason and yeah i think if i'd stayed in college it would have been one of the worst decisions of my life i'm really glad i made the decision not to not to not to push on through because uh yeah it's funny actually one of the girls i was in college with would you believe is, is one of my clients and she hated every minute of the four years you know we were only talking about it on the phone yesterday yeah and she she you know went back and did law so she spent eight years in college you know and she's only just after qualifying now um you know and i'm you know do do my thing and, and working away and yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't think it's it. I don't think it should be sneered at. I don't think it should be laughed at if people decide not to go to college. I think we should be putting more things in place for young people uh, in Ireland to support them, not maybe choosing the kind of standard path. If I had one power, if I had one piece of political power, that's the thing I'd do. I'd put more things in place, encourage um, young people in secondary school to pursue things like entrepreneurship and stuff like that. Like, I don't care what anybody says, and I might get lambasted and massively disagree you cannot teach entrepreneurship in college you teach entrepreneurship by starting and failing and making lots of mistakes and trying things out you can't teach that stuff inside the room in a classroom you teach that stuff out like haggling and grafting and working you know so that's that's my point of view on it i'm, I'm like yeah obviously i missed a lot of crack and i missed a lot of nights out and fun and stuff like that and yeah look it's a pity but i'm really grateful for for the decision i made back then and it was it was hard at the time because, you know, you're still so young and you think that you're supposed to be kind of taking this path because people recommended you to take this path. And then you decided to go down a different road um, where there's no road markings and, and, and created a, a bit of a different trail. So, yeah, look, it's against the grain, but I'm, I'm glad I did it at the end of the day. Do you think around that time you were struggling in hindsight? Do you think you're struggling with your identity? Oh, massive. I think not every young person is at that point you know yeah. I think yeah hugely I mean I had no idea who I was or what I was doing you know I just literally ran that first marathon I actually remember specifically going to UL for the first week and I remember there my first ever tutor my first ever tutor session I didn't go because it was up the stairs and I couldn't walk after my first marathon so I was like fuck that I'm not I couldn't go up the stairs I, I literally couldn't even put my shoes on like I was broken um and you know yeah obviously every i think at that point every young person everyone's a young person is trying to be something everyone's trying to figure out who they are what they want to be um and it it took me just to really get into running to find out like who i was and what i enjoyed you know and i'm, a, I'm like i will put it out like i'm a I'm, i am a funny fish do you know what i mean like I, I love being on my own i love nothing more than going like spending a whole day on my own either running or cycling or hiking up a mountain like just completely alone and seeing nobody but i also equally love meeting people and seeing people and talking to people and talking to groups and stuff like that um so yeah it took me a long time to figure that identity out and i think that's something that we're always trying to work on even up until this very day do you know and i think you should never you should never stop trying to figure that out um you know we shouldn't i think i think what happens now a lot is that young people get they get molded into this identity that people want them to be. And I don't think we allow young people to explore it and figure it out for themselves. Do you, do, do, where do you think this, all this running and endurance running came from? You know, was, was um, it in your family? Timmy always uh, says he ran community games, but I don't know how true that was. Like. Well, in fairness, uh, you know, I, I do remember vividly as a child growing up and just literally like, like, you know, every now and again, whatever it was, a rainy day during the summer or something, you know, my dad would literally just pull out this massive box of medals that he won running. And like, there's a lot of medals there, little trophies and stuff like that, and the presses and things like that. You know, so but I do specifically remember him telling me one thing. You know, when I when I uh, was like 16, I he said no, if he's you know he was talking about college and stuff like that, and now he said you know he like didn't finish school or all that kind of stuff. And but he was like, I do know one thing. He said, if there's anything that you want to do, he said, if you do, if you work hard enough, you'll get it. And that, that stuck with me. You know, always think about things that stick in your mind when you're growing up and stuff like that. So that's that's something that stuck in my mind. It was like, you know, if you work away, it's something like you, you, you get to where you want to go, you know. So the running, I'm not sure, to be honest. I remember literally like finishing my first marathon and literally for the first minute being like, that is the worst thing I have ever done in my life. I've never felt so much pain. And then walking up to my mother's shop 
uh, in Dingle, which is, you know, about less than a kilometer from the finish line. And sitting in my mother's shop, telling my mother all about the day and uh, literally saying like, you know, uh, you know, can I get my laptop there? I'm going to see if I can do another one of these like sometime soon. You know, so I think after that, like if you did a study on everybody who runs marathons, I would say 95% of them weren't runners before they started running their first marathon. They do it just, to, you know, for their mind, for their physical health, to lose a bit of weight, whatever it might be, or to help people or whatever it is. And then they understand that running makes them feel really good. Um, running is the first thing in my life that I ever suppose, you know, did on my own. Whereas I was like very, very involved with, with GA growing up. And I love GA, I love competing, I love training. Um, and I loved the team aspect. But the only other thing as well is that, you know, there's 15 lads on a team. And like, if you have a bad day, you still win, you know, you still win or you might even, you might give 70% and you still know you're kind of going to win the game. Whereas like we're running, you know, you're 24 miles into marathon. Nobody can, you have to do it on your own. Nobody can help you. And I really like that, you know, obviously it took me a while to figure that out because uh, yeah, the first one was a bit of a shit show, but other than that, I was just like, this is really cool. I wish I started doing this sooner, you know? Um, but yeah, it definitely gave me a sense of purpose. It put me back in my box for sure. It was just like, you're not as fit or as strong as you think you are. You're actually incredibly weak. <laughs> so uh, then I just wanted to get better at it, you know? So yeah, all the way from that first marathon, I've run over, I've run 119 marathons now. I just run them for fun now. Do you know what I mean? So like, um, we all have to start somewhere with one, you know? And how, we kind of answered the question there. What was the biggest change for you moving from like the team aspect, team environment to individual sport? Was it that, you know, you, there's no other people there to pick you up if you're if you're down? It's you versus you. Not even to pick you up if you're down, because when you think about it, like from an individual aspect, a lot of what I've done over the last number of years, I've had a team as well. But I've been the person on the road doing the work. And so it's like, I still mm. quote unquote have a team, but endurance sports as a whole, I mean, you have to pick yourself up when you're down. That's the thing as well about endurance sports. Like the other thing about it as well, I with a team sport, like you can give 60% and still get a W, so still get a win. Whereas if you give 60% in individual sport, you get a 60% win. That's, that's it. You don't get 100% out of yourself. So what I noticed was in a team sport, you might put in massive effort in training, but a guy halfway down the line in the sprints is, is kind of just taking the pace and not really doing it. But but he's more of a reflection on your jersey as, as you are, even though you're trying your best. Whereas I found when I was running and when I just started to run and started to take running seriously, if I gave 100%, I got 100% back. So you get what you put out of it. That's what I found. Um, and look, I know obviously some teams, every single person puts in everything, but then, you know, that's just my own personal opinion on that. Um, so then that, that was the main difference I saw was just like, it was me versus me instead of me and 14 others against 15 others. Do you know what I mean? So like, that's, that's what I kind of liked about it. And it was the, like, like I said, it was the first really individual thing I'd ever done in my life. And yeah, it was, um, that was the main, the main difference. I think you, I know you went on doing, you did obviously 12 marathon, 12 days. And, and, um, I'd be interested to kind of get your insight. What did you learn from that large endurance event? that you applied into the 24 marathons? Um, I think <sighs> it costs money. Uh, obviously <laughs> raise money, but I actually remember, I, I actually put a lot of my own money into the 12 and 24 marathons. That I, a lot of people don't really know that, but I had to spend a lot of time figuring out the training aspect of it. Okay. And the time, the time it took was absolutely insane. So I was trying to run a company. I just started like, so we started my first business in, in, uh, in 20, I suppose it was 2013, 2013 proper, a proper legit business. Like it was no more cash kind of a job, you know? Um, and then obviously by 2014, things were starting to grow quite rapidly. You know, every startup gets that phase where we're at a very big growth phase. Um, and we were in it and we were, you know, we were loving it. We were very excited and stuff like that. So I was trying to find the balance between running a business, managing people, and then also training. Like I think I was training like an average. I think my average for the 12 marathons was about 20 hours a week training. So like you had a full-time job, um, you know, your own, you're running your own business, which is like an 80 hour week thing. Then you had 20 hours a week of training. Now, again, like my environment was really key and I kind of created my own environment. So I like, you know, my first training facility, I was able to train 
every single day, which is great, you know. So Sundays were my big days. Even if I was working, you know, I would still go in at 6 a.m. and I'd run on the treadmill for two and a half hours before I open up the gym. You know, so little things like that were, were really key and that really helped me. Um, and then as well, I suppose that I brought into the 12, I think the 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 emphasis of the team was was really key. So when I do a lot of these events, you look at an ultra marathon or an Ironman or a one, one half marathon or whatever, it's just you. Like literally, if you take help uh, in an Ironman, if somebody in the crowd hands you a gel or a bottle of water, you're disqualified because it's just you have to get to the start and finish on your own. You cannot get help from other people. Um, and I think that's fair. But what I noticed was that the importance of the team aspect in the, the 12 was really, really evident. And then I brought that massively across to the 24, as you know. So like I outsourced, we'll say a lot of stuff. So things like, um, you know, in my mind, basically what I told myself is I have to run from point A to point B. I'll trust them to tell me where to go. Um, I'll, you know, we get drafted a hotel. I, I ha- my job is now to rest and just repeat what I just did the next day. The rest of it, eh don't really need to worry about it because the team have kind of that got covered. You know what I mean? So like, that's That was kind of my, my main kind of takeaway from, let's say going from the 12 to the 24, I think the, the importance of, of asking for help really. Like delegating authority really like, and yeah. And, and, and trust, yeah. trust the rest of people. Yeah. Just that, that uh, I always remember obviously like very approaching differently you now, but the 24 marathon, 24 days, um, you saw it was wrecked by the time I got to Dingle. I can imagine how bad you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i to be honest after these events it's the month after i really i really struggle like it just, just fatigue you know like you're just drained physically and mentally you know it's um you're just on a buzz i suppose you know in it or whatever or when you get close to the end um but yeah you know it's it's a long it's a long thing it's mentally draining like you're constantly thinking your brain's constantly going your body's constantly going you're sleeping in different places every night you're not eating, you know, your own usual food and, and, and you know, little things like that. They're all small, but like they've got a compounding effect. They all kind of add up, you know? So, um, so yeah, I can imagine it was uh, probably tough to be part of that as well from a crew aspect. Oh, it was unbelievable. Though. Great crack in fairness. It was uh, definitely, geez, it was, it was once a lifetime opportunity. I, I know, see, I, I got, obviously that opportunity allowed me to, to see you firsthand um, and, what you went through was it was quite fast fascinating from the outside looking in but it's amazing how you your self-talk was so strong um that's not something that would happen overnight how did you build up that self-talk over the years um it took time uh, it took a lot of time it took a lot of showing up days of my own um one particular day stands out in my mind and it was probably day 19 of the 24 marathons I actually ran my fastest marathon on that day and I remember saying to myself that you know everybody no matter what you say like you can watch whatever you want even David Goggins himself has negative negative thoughts okay but I think what I figured out over the last number of years is that it's what you do with the negative thoughts when they come in it's how you speak to yourself about the negative thoughts so, you know, we can say this, oh, I'm great, I'm good, look at me, stuff like that. That's like, that's grand for the first five minutes. But then when you're in there for 24 days, like bad things do go through your head, you know, and you question yourself and stuff like that. But it's how you deal with yourself when you start thinking negatively. That's that's what I say, do you know what I mean? So I would always counteract everything. So if I'm just like, oh, you know, I'm not feeling great, like this is, this is difficult or whatever, I would always in my own brain, and I'd never say these out loud, is it's like, yeah, it's difficult, but you're doing well. Look, look how far you've gone. You've already got 10K done today or whatever it might be. So I would always back up a negative with a positive because look, no matter what you say or who says what, you cannot stop negative self-talk. Like it doesn't matter who you are or what you are. Do you know what I mean? Like we all have negative self-talk. We all have negative thoughts every single day. Um, but I think it's what you do when they come in. I, I found out that to be the one of the most important things you know so yeah look obviously you'd have negative you might have many many negative thoughts in a day or in a marathon you know but it's what you do with them when they come in i think is really key you you had games that you used to play with yourself you used to you know a lot of people find these endurance events extremely boring even 5k's but you used to count the yellow lines on the road remember that yeah so it's counting in blocks of 19 because 20 would be too easy to add up 
And then when I'd lose count of the multiplication of 19, I would just start again. Um, and to be honest, by the end of it, I was losing count after two sets or three sets of 19. Um, so then if I started to struggle, I was like, well, four 19s is 80. And then I'm done four. So I'm at 76 now. Um, you know, and next thing I'd end up missing one line and I'm like, oh, start again. So just little things like that. You know, it was, it was so long. It was, you know, you're out there for so long on your own. You kind of have to make up things, you know, to, to kind of keep yourself occupied. One of the days that stand out as well was we were, we were going through Monaghan. Monaghan, yeah, and it did not stop raining and you, you started to develop an issue with your calf. Mm. What, like, obviously you're internally, you're in pain, but you obviously have the external factor of the rain as well. How, like, how are you dealing with that? I, do you know what? I actually don't get too bothered by rain. I, because I, I train it all the time. So like, uh, when it started raining, I was just like, I was just like home, do you know, it didn't matter me at all. The calf, I remember that got quite tight. I don't know what happened that particular morning. I actually started off really well. I remember running the first 10K in 46 minutes. Like I was feeling really, really good. Um, like like bopping, I was flying. Um, and then the calf just got a little bit tight. The roads got a bit windy and they got there was a little bit of a camber on the road. So the road you know, petered off both sides. Um, I just remember my right calf really tightening up. And I was just like, what the hell is this now? This is this is pretty uncomfortable, you know? Um, and there was no physio around, obviously. We are in the middle of nowhere in Monaghan until that night. So I had to do a lot of work on it myself, um, which got me to a certain point. But yeah, that was a, that was a rough old day, um, you know? But yeah, the rain at, the, at that day was, was, was the least of my worries, really. I was just hoping my calf wasn't going to tear because um, if it did, it would have probably been the end of the 24 marathons. I, I remember from the outset, your main focus was always or your long-term goal or medium to long-term goal was Keeley's Pass. You wanted to, to yeah. tackle that. Cahar Pass is it a Keeley's Cahar Pass? Cahar Pass, yeah. Cahar Pass. You wanted to, to tackle that. Um, how did you kind of obviously leave that there but didn't allow it to affect what was in front yeah. of you? Like, uh, I mean, the Caja Pass, were, Caja Pass is one of the highest mountain passes in Ireland. And I was like, I had to run up it. But the thing that I was kind of telling myself is that when I go through the bridge, I said, I'm into Kerry, right? So that was a big, big win. Now, I was in Kerry, I had three, like two and a half more marathons still to run by the time I got through the bridge. But I said, if I get to Kerry at all, like, I don't care if I get shot, like in the leg, I'll still keep going. Like, I'll, I'll finish if I get to Kerry. That was my kind of thing, Joe, because I was like, you know, quote unquote, home, my home county by that point. Um, and as well, I wanted to be in a fit enough state to run up Caja Pass. So I promised myself that I would do everything in my power. I would sleep as best I can. I would roll, foam roll and stretch as best I can at all the physio sessions because I wanted to be able to show up for myself and run up the Caja Pass. And I actually remember on that morning, you know, I don't know who said it or what, but basically there was like six people going to run with me that day. And um, I remember rocking up in the morning being like, just like, where are the people that are going to run with me? Do you know, I was like, they're, they're going to be late, like, do you know? And someone told them on the QT to like, you know, like Shane's been talking about running this on his own for like, since like two years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. So they, the group of them decided to run up themselves and meet me at the top. Um, and that was, that was really, really cool. And it was really nice. And I remember like, actually they left 30 minutes before me um, and I nearly caught them at the top. Like I was just buzzing to get to the top of the Caja Pass. And I, I, like, I'll never forget that run. I've, I actually drove it a few weeks ago. I was just like, how the hell did I run up here so fast? But, um, you know, look, the mind is the mind is a powerful thing. And when you put yourself, you, you put a picture in your brain and when you every time you blink, you see it. And yeah, you know, it, you're in that bubble and it's, it's you know, nothing, nothing was really going to stop me at that point, you know, um, unless I get hit by a car or something. But, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, obviously I had a lot of obstacles across before I got to that. I wouldn't, that was just a goal at the end. It was a target. And I knew that if I did all the small things very well, if I, you know, slept, if I ate well, if I slept well, if I recovered, got my water in, et cetera, et cetera, that I would be in a fit enough state and I could control that every single day. So I knew if I just keep ticking these things off every day, then you'll get to the cat pass, you know? So that was what I tried to do. Uh, like we're saying those the the saying the, the double figures you know of marathons how did you find sleep and how did you find recovery it must be extremely difficult yeah sleep was a sleep was a strange one all right because it was in the summertime in ireland the hotel rooms are always really warm um at the start that's what i struggled with but to be honest i think by day six and i like brought all my own notes down and i kept them by day six i was just so tired that uh, you know i was falling asleep in the van on the way back to the hotel so like 
it wasn't nothing really stopped me from sleeping to be honest with you i was just out for the count every single night recovery was obviously food two dinners a physio session you know cold water bath and and that was it and and off into bed you know and i would i'd be gone to sleep within probably less than two minutes and if for these endurance events how do you get the body going in the morning after you know after multiple yeah, um, it's just get get up and get walking. That's the first thing. You know, a lot of people, I suppose, in these months would stay in bed for as long as they can. But I, I like to, you know, get up about 90 minutes to two hours before I need to start, uh, eat and just get walking, get moving, open up the joints a little bit. Um, in America, we used to do a really, really light, like mobility session in the mornings, just whatever I could, literally like lying flat back in my bed. I'd look, bring my knees to my chest and knee across the body and just move my ankle joints and just open everything back up. That's how we used to do it in the mornings. And I found that in America really good. And I should have something I obviously learned and something I, I could have done in the 24, but I didn't know at the time. But um, yeah, just basic movement, good food. Um, I usually would take a really, really hot shower in the morning just to warm my muscles up and stuff um, and then get going. The first couple of miles were always pretty rough, but once I get into it, it was like no better or no worse than the day before, you know. But you know what we say in Ireland? If something went wrong, you were never too far away from, you know, from help or whatever the case may be. But how do you deal with that uncertainty we say in the back of your mind about the massive event ultra American ultra was? You know, if something went wrong, you, you could be in the middle of wherever, like yeah. Um, I mean, look, we we had we again we didn't share this with anybody, but we I had a list of hospitals and a list of airports on a file near the route if anything did go wrong you know i have travel insurance of medical insurance so like i mean yeah it's always in the back of your mind but you can't dwell on it like do you know what i mean i mean anything you do like there's risk uh there's risk with everything do you know what i mean i mean i always, i remember saying like to my my family like i was like you know i was telling them that like we should make a list of hospitals like you know and there was like there's risk involved with everything you know i, I could walk down to the shop for milk after this and if but I know that the medical center is only down the street if anything goes wrong, you know? So like, you know, that's the way I looked at it. And I mean, look, might need it, but it's good to know that they're there. And yeah, it gave me more peace of mind, really, to be honest, more than anything. I was like, look, I'm, I'm going to go hard here. And if anything does go wrong, at least I know I'm close to somewhere, <laughs> you know? But uh, some people are like, oh, geez, that's very worrying. I was like, for me, it's reassuring, really, to be honest, knowing that if, because I will give it everything. And if I do give everything, there's a chance that it might go wrong. But if it does go wrong, at least we know we're near medical professionals a lot of the time you know now obviously in america sometimes we weren't near them um and i actually had three phone calls with my gp here in ireland uh, in dingle actually and um, throughout the trip in america just about certain things that we were watching and monitoring um you know and even over the phone he was like, like i think i think you're okay you know even when we were in the rockies and stuff i was coughing up blood and i was getting, no, getting a lot of nosebleeds um but once i got out of altitude i was absolutely fine nothing nothing went wrong and it was all good Jesus, uh, you know, during that event, your body would have been through obviously extreme heat and extreme cold. What were the standout moments there? Um, I mean, the cold early on is what really caught me out because it was so warm in California. I spent obviously a month in Colorado beforehand training because at the time I didn't have an, uh, my visa for the US. So I was literally on the, the travel visa. So I had I spent 88 days. So I pushed the limits on, on the all 90 days. So I spent 88 days there nearly between training and stuff like that. Um, so I was pretty used to altitude at the start. So because I was training at altitude, and then obviously, you know, the temperatures, they got the coldest um winter ever recorded since since 1904, some fucking mad year um uh, in California. Um of course, the spring that I decided to start and things like this here that is, which are literally desertous mountains were, were covered in 10 foot of snow. Um, so that was a real rattle in the cage, to be honest, starting off. I remember morning number three, cycling down this hill and reaching for my water bottle and to take a swig out and it was completely frozen solid. And, um, you know, not from the freezer in the camper van, but from cycling through the cold air, you know. So uh, and then remember blinking in my eyelashes, starting to kind of freeze together if I blink for a long period of time, you know. So like that was... That was uh, something we weren't really ready for, to be honest, but either were the people of California and, and Nevada because you know, it had been the coldest winter since 1904 um, and just happened to be the spring that we picked to start as well. But, you know, we got through it and it warmed up a bit after that then. You, you were going to do it in 2020, were you? 
Uh, no, we. I always push for 2019. I always push for. I just. I just. I just had it in my head, and I was like, "This is this is happening." You know. Um. I think there were talks of pushing it to 2020 from a fundraising perspective, but I put my foot down there and said, "No, let's just get it done." Yeah. And but like, I remember. Obviously, we landed over when you went came into New York, and she saw us retired after the journey. Like, but then I saw you come in. I remember I said it to your mother. I was like. She's a bit tired now after the journey, and she kind of looked at me, and I, I had it out of my mouth before I realized it. I said, Yeah, she ends after running from one side of America to the other. I don't think I should have said that. Like, <laughs> but, uh, how, uh, how did you wind down after it? Um I I I was I was looking forward to coming home. I remember I remember specifically um three days after I finished everybody got home at this point and I was back up in Connecticut actually because I had left some of my stuff up there I'd left a bike up there I left a suitcase and stuff up there so I had gone back up to Connecticut to break down my bike fly it home etc etc in the jigs and the reels the bike I had up in Connecticut I ended up actually selling it up there uh which is freaking very handy because then I didn't have to bring it home um and actually sold around the bike box as well so I was just like oh this is brilliant but I was staying in actually a house belonged to one of the professors from Sacred Heart University here in, in Dingle. And um, I remember like not being able to sleep because my body was just so tired. And I wanted to sleep, but I couldn't. And I remember getting up at like 10 to 5 in the morning and, and going for a run because I was just like, I'm like, I don't know what else to do. Do you know what I mean? He said, maybe if I run, I'll be able to sleep or whatever. Um, and then that next night I slept really well because I had ran that day, I guess. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that was just a contributing factor. But for me, I got home then, the, the, I had to get back to doing what I what my body thought was normal. Um, so I remember arriving, flying home through the night, arriving to Dublin at six o'clock. Uh, my father picked me up at the airport, drove straight home, cup of tea. I put my bike together and I drove back to the England cycle around Slayhead. Because I was like, I had to get back to doing what I, you know, thought was normal. Now, obviously, I cycled very easy and took my time. But, you know, I was like, this is what I do. This is where I'm from. This is what I like, you know. And, um, yeah, I got into a really nice routine then post-America. With, where I had to put back on a good bit of weight. Um, I, I was spent a bit of time in the bonds in Tralee, just getting my heart checked, um, doing MRI on my knee. That was actually absolutely fine. It was just a bit of inflammation. Um, and just lots of sleep and lots of food and reflection and and yeah, thinking forward of what's next. Do you lose much weight during those events? I lost seventeen pounds across America. Yeah, so I lost seven. So it's a, that was a lot of now. Pre America, I intentionally put on quite a quite a bit of muscle. So I was actually strength training quite heavy up until three days before I crossed America. Um, and I actually have I have before and after pictures that I've never shared. But I just keep it for myself. Um, and there's there's a significant difference. Like I was probably the most muscular I've ever been pre pre America. And then when I finished, I was like, definitely not, you know? So yeah, I lost nearly 17 pounds, which is, which is a good, good chunk. It's like over a stone for, yeah, I don't, I'm a pretty small frame person anyway. So like, you know, I really felt that post post America, like I, I had, you know, I didn't feel as strong and felt a bit weak and stuff like that. So yeah, that, that didn't take me long to put it back on, but uh, other than that, I was, I was all good. So yeah. And then in 24 marathons, I lost about 10 pounds. I just think with the, with the heat and the cycling and the added, I was out there for my days were way longer in America. So that, that kind of, uh, that adds up, you know. Roughly how many, how many calories were you um, putting into your body during those events? I suppose all American ultra probably the main one, because you would have been more knowledgeable and things. Yeah, um, twenty four marathon. I don't don't have a number on that. I could I could nearly tell you every single meal I had. I have notes. I think of twenty two of the meals I ate in the twenty four marathons, but across America, I was aiming for about eight thousand calories a day. Um, so that's a fair amount of food. Like, do you know what I mean? Um, it was easy enough to get it in. To be honest, like I have no bother getting eight eight thousand in every day through through different meals and and stuff like that. You know, so. Yeah, we shoot for about eight thousand. Um, should have been more, maybe. Should have put on a bit more weight beforehand, maybe. You know, I I don't really know. I, I think I'll have to do it again to to test some of my theories out. Do you ever see yourself doing something something um, you know, some kind of an event like that down the line? Or are you kind of going towards more mountain events now? Mountain. No, I'll, de- I'll definitely I'll definitely cross America again at some point. Um, not too sure when, but I think. When I do it next, um, I'll probably do it solo or something like that, or just maybe one other person in a van or something, you know, smaller crew, 
not for charity or anything like that, just for the crack, I think, because I was so like, I was so enthralled with trying to get to New York and literally my whole focus and the whole thing was keep moving, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing to get to New York. And I like, I missed a lot of America. Do you know what I mean? I missed some beautiful places that we cycle through and that people talk about literally flying from other parts of the world to see. And I was just like, oh, geez, I cycled through that, but I don't remember it because I was just like so focused on getting to New York, you know? So if I was to do it again, yeah, I'd probably do it, and, but just take my time, like, you know, and get a little minivan or something like that and just have it a crack. Would you like to drive it? You know, the road no, no, I'd hate to drive it. I'd say it'd be absolutely painful to drive. Um, I'd rather cycle it, to be honest. I think it'd be a lot better crack. Yeah. What was the biggest compliment you ever been given by someone? You know, because obviously, you know, a lot of people would say that you would, you're a bit tapped or headbanger or whatever else. Like, yeah. You um. Oh, this is an easy answer. I mean, I, I this winter kind of Christmas of 2015, 2016, before the 24 marathons. Um, I think the biggest compliment I got was right before Christmas we went for dinner in a restaurant in Dingle. We happened to bump into one of Mary's doctors. And uh, he turned around to me. He said, you have no idea how proud that girl is of you. So that was, without a doubt, the biggest compliment I ever got in my life. How do you remain upbeat and all that? Like, I've known you for years, obviously, we grew up together. I'd say it has developed very much into gratitude, the power of gratitude. Would that be the focus of it? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not upbeat all the time. Uh, Same as everybody. I have days where I don't feel like doing what I should be doing. You know, I... I, uh, I'm not positive all the time. I, I do have times where, you know, I struggle, obviously, like everybody. But I also realize that, you know, I, I've, I've, I'm a very, very lucky guy to be able to do what I do. I, I have a roof over my head. I've got food in my fridge and I can put my two feet in the floor in the morning. You know, after that, everything else is a bonus for me. I mean, if a day passes and I get to run, I get to cycle my bike, I get to do a bit of work and, you know, I get to see myself progressing. You know, that that's about it. I, you know, Things might might be complicated uh, doing all these big events and stuff like that, but other like to be honest, I live my life very simply, um, you know, and that's that's kind of how I stay upbeat. I think the simpler you can keep things, the happier you are. Roughly, what's your calorie intake at the moment? Out of curiosity, do you know, we say normal days for you. Absolutely no idea because I don't track it on a day to day basis. Yeah. No, I don't track it at all. Um, I just think it's it's too much to be tracking it every single day. Um, I just eat literally to, to feel, you know what I mean? So if I feel like I'm not getting enough, I get a little bit more. I know my body so well at this stage, you know, I could, I, I, I could, you know, I don't really need to, to track calories, but if I was doing something big again, I probably track calories in the build up to make sure I'm getting enough food in, um, and maybe during, but nah, I, I don't, uh, I like to enjoy my food. <laughs> I don't obsess over too much. Just it's fascinating is actually I wouldn't like to win through, but it's funny when the lads came down when Stephen Kelly and, and Peter Cassidy, you know, um, you're obviously so used to running on an empty stomach. Like, mm. what, what's your opinion on on running on um on an empty stomach now or fasted, whatever, whatever the, the, the terminology yeah. is? I mean, it can work for some people. Um, it takes you have to train it, like, you can't just go out and start running to an empty stomach, like, you have to. I think I spent eight months like building up to like 90 minutes, <laughs> you know? So like you have to take your time. Like you have to really kind of build it up. Um, it is really, really good for low intensity stuff. If you're something like a GA player or a sprinter or something like that, it's actually probably one of the worst things that you can do. Um, but for me, because I was going at such a low intensity for such a longer period of time, like my main fuel source was fat. So I could just burn fat for hours and I got really good at doing that. Um, and obviously I trained my body to try do that more uh obviously getting ready for america now would i do it all the time no probably not but for me it was just a training modality basically to help me get more efficient at burning fat um it's slippery slope though because you know you have to be able to uh, put fuel into the body for basic bodily functions um for recovery and things like that it's it's very important to, to make sure that you're eating enough um but i think it does have a place at certain points where if i was six months out from an event um, a big event like that, I'd be doing the odd morning session fasted, but um, not all the time. I just think that it does have its place, but it's not to be all in all. The two boys will collapse after it. You... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they got, a, they got a lesson in what not to do before an event. Anyways, that weekend. Um, how's your, how do you deal with time management? Do you know, because like you have interviews, you have podcasts, you have mm-hmm. webinars, you have so much going on. How do you kind of stay rigid? Uh, my Google Calendar. If I didn't have a Google Calendar, I'd be uh, I'd be last, and I book all my calls through Calendly and things like that. So everything's automated. So I know a day or two out, kind of what every single day looks like. Um, I I 
I plan all my training into my calendar and no calls can go in at that time. Nothing. If I'm supposed to do a two hour run, the two hour run goes into the day. Like every other thing I do in the day goes into the calendar. Uh, and that's, that's how I rock it. I, I've been, I've gotten very, very selfish with my time, especially over the last year with, with COVID. And I'm like, if I'm doing something that I'm doing, I, I you know, I'm either not bringing my phone or, you know, if I'm going out in the hills, I would bring my phone just for safety reasons. But yeah, when I'm working, I'm working. When I'm not, I'm not, you know. So I think that's something that I think everybody struggled with during COVID. Like we had so much more access to our phones and we're on our phones all day and people are answering emails at seven o'clock at night and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it like time out? Like my, my sleep is, is absolutely, it's vital. Like I wake up every morning around six or seven. Uh, phone is gone like by 10 o'clock at night usually and I don't look at it because I do know if I'm reacting to things late at night and messages and stuff like that it just gets my brain going and then I can't sleep and I know for a fact if I'm on my phone late at night I know that I'm not as productive the next day because I've, I've tracked it I've, I've taken notes I journal every single day and if I'm on my phone late at night the next day I'm not as productive so I read you know watch a bit of Netflix whatever just let the brain slow down and then if I get a good night's sleep and I'm well rested, I can nail the next day, you know? So then the last thing as well, I don't do, I don't like, I don't get caught up doing stupid things I don't need to do. You know, I, I just do stuff that I need to do right now. Um, I need to do stuff that's pushing my business forward. And then I need to, the third thing I do is I need to do stuff that I enjoy and I like, I find fun, you know, and that, that I kind of strike that balance. Pretty good, I think. We're near, we're nearly there now, so I appreciate taking time out. But is leaving a legacy or, or an impact important to, to you? Um, I think it is. I mean, you know, everybody, I suppose, thinks about it in some way, say, perform. Like, I'm not obsessed with leaving a legacy or anything like that. Or, but I would, I would like to have an impact, um, in some way, shape, or form. Like, whether that's through like helping people. Um, and, and the the I suppose the sad part about it is, is that the people that I've impacted over the last number of years. <sighs> you know, I'll probably outlive them all. Um, so, I'm, you know, you never really, you know, people only talk about legacies and impact when the person's actually dead. You know what I mean? So like, I don't uh, think about it massively, but I know that like, look, if you do the right thing, if you're good to people, if you try your best and uh, you help others, that that's, that's a, that's a good enough legacy. You know, it's not a, for me, that's not really about money. It's not about the money we raise for the charity. It's about how many smiles you brought to people's faces. And if you can continue doing that throughout your life, um, I think that's a pretty good legacy to live. Do you have any regrets from the endurance events you've done? Any regrets from the endurance events I've done? Um, no, not really. I mean, obviously, I would have, I would have loved, uh, you know, maybe had an opportunity if I was more savvy in my marketing skills to what I am now, pre-America and pre-24 marathons, I think we could have done a lot more. But um, no, that is the only thing I do think of back. I'm just like, God, if I knew what I knew now about marketing and social media and, you know, all that kind of stuff to the extent that I know now, um, I think we would have done really well. And like we would have possibly raised the both events and we probably would have raised a lot more money. Um, but no, I've, I've absolutely no regrets. You know, I think on all occasions I, I've done what I said I was going to do. And, and that's always kind of my my target and it's to finish these things out and, and help people, you know. So no, I don't have any regrets. Last one, I, I love catching people on the hop with this, but I think you should probably have no better answer it. What are two daily non-negotiables for you? Uh, journaling first thing in the morning and um, either kind of would say texting or ringing some member of my immediate family each day. So whether it be, you know, my sister lives away or I know my mom only works down the street or whatever, but I'll just give them a call, see what's the crack, how are you getting on? You know, just, just stay connected. I mean, I think that's really important because, you know, we live in a world now where we can get so caught up doing our own thing all the time that we forget about those that are closest to us. So look, I'd be a very open person anyway, but also very private at the same time. So I journal every single morning for about five or 10 minutes when I'm having my coffee. And um, I think journaling is, is um, I mean, when I have kids, the first thing I'm going to teach them is how to journal, how to how to write down their thoughts. Um, I think that's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, and then just connecting with people. So give people a text, give people a call, call down somebody. You know, I, I think that's 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 really important for me. When you say journaling, is that just literally like is it just literally a brain dump? It's, it, no not really i mean it's more thought-provoking stuff so you know the journal i use is the five minute journal you get i'm, I'm on my flick fifth one now and you get them on amazon it just asks you a couple of questions and you just you know you respond to the questions and whatever your your thoughts are that morning i don't know i think brain dumps are a bit uh, 
you just write down what you want to write down. You won't write down the things that you, you know that are challenging or you need to challenge yourself on. So I just find with journaling, it's a bit more honest. It's a bit more open. It's just, it's for myself. Like it's not a diary like that, but it just makes me, um, just keeps me honest in the day. You know, if I say I'm going to do something, if I write down something I should have done yesterday, I'm looking at it today and it's still not done. Well, you can be sure that I'll get it done that day, you know? So uh, it's almost like an honesty book to myself. Perfect, perfect. Look, Shane, um, we took, I think we covered a huge amount and I appreciate you taking time out to come on Inside View podcast and best luck with the upcoming events and I'm sure we'll be in contact. Nice one, Jamie. Thanks very much for having me on, buddy. Much appreciated. I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Shane. I think we get a great insight into his mindset um, and we'd like to thank Shane for taking time out to come on Inside View podcast and best luck with everything going forward. That is all from us on this week's podcast and on this series as well of um, an Inside View podcast. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, or if you'd like to get in contact with On The Ball Team Building, you can email us info at ontheballteambuilding.com. Be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date and to get information as to when we plan to be back with Series 2. You'll find us on Instagram at underscore on the ball team building, over on Facebook on the ball team building, over on Twitter it's at we are on the ball two, that is digit two. You'll also find us on LinkedIn on the ball team building, and you'll find us on TikTok on the ball team building. Have a lovely week, and till next time, stay safe, and remember, cred on a fan. Talk to you all soon. And thank you all for listening and for the support you've given the podcast. Talk to you all soon.